Welcome to How Did We Get Queer, a podcast from The Pigeon. My name is Isaac, award-winning erotic filmmaker and one of your co-hosts. My name is Thomas, a probably B- minus to C+, plus gay short story writer. I'm your other co-host. This episode is the third part of a three-part series that we have been doing this month about queer representation in Canadian film and television. And on this episode, we are speaking with an aspiring queer filmmaker slash media producer slash all-around cool person who produces lots of cool queer stuff, which is why we started this episode talking about queer stuff that we have produced. Thomas, tell us about your queer production, because what is life in capitalism if we are not constantly producing something? That's true. So I don't know about you, but in my high school, every year it was mandatory to write a short story, whether or not you were good at it or whether or not you wanted to. And you were judged on how uh, there was probably like specific criteria, you know, whether it had a plot or whatever. And in grade 12, I was like, probably a little bit of like, F the system. I'm going to write a gay thing. So then I wrote a short story about two men in a war who were gay for each other. And then, spoiler alert, I think one of them dies. Uh Uh-oh. Now that I can remember sitting at in the computer room in my house, really taking my time, really being like, oh, you know, every word matters, blah, 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 blah. And I remember it being dark outside. And it was probably not good. I don't remember really anything about it except that it exists. Also remember being like, oh my God, what if I get in trouble? So part of me was after the system, but also what if I get in trouble? Um, and then my friend like read it. And she was like, literally nothing happens. They don't even talk to each other. And I was like, okay, that's okay. I'm not going to get in trouble. But what uh, what is there, what more is there to being gay than just pining after someone and never talking to them? Yes. Unrequited love. Yes, unrequited love. Beautiful. I did not do very well in my career as a gay short story writer, but your erotic filmmaking career, it seems like it started with a bang. Well, I mean, I have produced one film, and yes, it's screened at one very small festival in Winnipeg for erotic short films. And yes, it did win a prize. It was a short film about car sex. Oh, where two cars have sex. Yes, exactly. Like, um, yeah, I was going to probably make an inappropriate joke about like the cars from Cars having sex, but I also have no. never seen that movie. You've never seen Cars? This is a Cars podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was about, uh, I interviewed different queer people in Winnipeg about their experiences having sex in cars, because I feel like car sex is also kind of queer, especially in a city like Winnipeg where everyone needs to drive as soon as they can walk, basically. Well, yeah, it was lots of sex being had in cars once people got to that age when they were experimenting. And for lots of queer people, the car was really the only privacy or place where they could, you know, kind of explore these desires. So, yes, this is my short film. There's not anything all that racy actually in the film, but I did record myself because it was more like an audio sound piece. I, I thought myself like a sound artist and I did record my ex-boyfriend and I like making out in the back of his car. And I was like, this is art. So that's, that exists out there somewhere. Does it actually like exist on the internet or just like you have it on a USB? Well, it actually, uh, now I feel like I'm just being too much of a, a self promoter, but 
Well, it's actually officially distributed by the Winnipeg Film Group. Oh. And you can, I think, like rent it online if you want to pay some of your hard-earned dollars to watch a film about car sex. So if you want to see Isaac's thing, you just go on the internet. And if you want to read my thing, you can email my mom and ask her to go through the family computer. Hopefully my thing will literally never see the light of day. I would actually just kind of die if that happened. I feel like it sounds like something I would totally like reblog on Tumblr in like 2012 or something. Oh, thank you. But enough about us. Thomas. Yes. Who are we speaking with today? Today we are talking to Alex Nguyen, a film student at the University of Winnipeg, who produces queer films and, like you said, just makes really incredible um, queer media. And just general queer art. Alex also happens to be from Winnipeg. This has been like a very Winnipeg-focused series, actually, and I kind of love it. Alex also performs as drag queen Ruby Chopsticks. You can catch her in... Winnipeg's only gay bar uh, (laughs) whenever the pandemic stops being a thing. Ruby Chopsticks is really, really fantastic. I've had the pleasure of seeing her perform a number of times and she is well worth your $5 bills. So I'm Alex or known as Ruby Chopsticks in Winnipeg. Uh, I'm a film student. I'm still a student at the U of W. I do a lot of short films, audio stuff, a lot of just like production things. I'm also a drag queen, a local one. <laughs> yes, I mean, of course, yeah, local drag queen in Winnipeg. I do a lot of shows. I've opened for like Mooney Cart and Derek Berry. That's, that's just me in a nutshell. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the importance of seeing queer people in media and the importance of representation. So in previous episodes, Isaac and I have talked about the first time we saw queer representation or characters that made a biggest impression of us. If you want to hear us talk about that, you can hear our prelude to our series. So Isaac, when is the sort of what's the most recent kind of like queer person that you saw in media, in film, in TV? So right now I'm watching Grace and Frankie, which is not at all obscure or anything, very mainstream on Netflix. I don't need to like advertise it. It doesn't need our (laughs) advertising space on this podcast, but I'm talking about it anyway. It's like, it's fine. It's fine. It's not exceptional. And, you know, I feel like that's also kind of, that's important representation too. You don't have to just have fantastic things. It's okay to also have just decent things. There are a lot of just like decent run-of-the-mill gays out there who deserve their <laughs> decent run-of-the-mill <laughs> representation on Netflix. I'm being facetious. I don't really believe this. <laughs> but yes, no, I, uh, I've been enjoying Grace and Frankie. It's about like this older couple who the husbands of these two wives come out and reveal that they have been in a relationship with each other for the past 20 years. And it's with Jane Fonda and, um, oh God, the other woman who I really like. Lily Tom. Tomlin, Lily Tomlinson. Yes, thank you. Maybe I'm thinking Tomlinson because Louie, the One Direction member. We are Gen Dead. Zetters. Woo! I don't know. Sometimes I feel more like a millennial. I actually self-identify as a Gen X. I would say I identify as Douglas Copeland. I'm not being funny here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell this to people all the time. I'm really annoying to talk to in person. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yes, but the most recent queer thing I've been consuming is is Grace and Frankie, which is fine, but also could probably be critiqued for some of the reasons that I think we're going to get into on this episode. 
How about you? What is the what's the queer thing you've been watching recently? Or you don't actually ever consume queer media, so Yes. So I'm going to continue talking about non-queer media that I have consumed. Recently, my roommate and I were re-watching some of uh, Community, which is like one of my favorite shows ever. And I'm like one of those things that I constantly re-watch. But I don't know, maybe it was the episodes that we chose or, you know, it is a constant theme throughout the entire show. But I was kind of like taken aback by the sort of blatant amount of gay jokes there are. And I think maybe it's like every other time I've been watching it, I just willfully was not noticing. Like, it was just kind of like, oh, people are constantly making fun of Jeff for being gay when he's not gay. He is just what a word that we used that used to be used and doesn't exist anymore, just a metrosexual. So I think I've been sort of dealing with the fact that my favorite show of all time, actually kind of, kind of homophobic, kind of queerphobic. But I think I think that's the problem with just rewatching any any comedy. You know, there's I think there's that saying that like comedy ages the worst out of any sort of thing. And so much comedy from the 2000s and 2010s is just like so blatant homophobia. Yeah, and I think that also kind of like speaks to this fact about how like because there's so or or at least there used to be so little queer representation that we were really just like any like scrap of like queer representation was just like so exciting and we like just grabbed onto it and then it's only years later that you're like oh wow that was actually really shitty like okay i'd never actually watched community but i can totally imagine being like a younger queer kid and being like oh look there no actually this is a bad example because jeff was not actually gay never mind or or how about new thing we are we are now claiming jeff as gay you heard it here first folks we're adding jeff winger does he ever actually is he ever like explicitly straight yeah i feel like he is it is constantly talked about how straight he is and how much sex sex he has with women but it's also constantly talked about how he's gay yes for doing just like normal man things, washing his hair, driving a car. I don't know. Just being clean. Literally, yeah. Straight men are gross. <laughs> so even when we talk about shows that do have good representation, really often it's good queer representation, but it's mostly representing white queer people. Not often do we see mainstream representations of queer people of color. BIPOC queer people are even less likely to see themselves represented than white queer folks are. In our interview with Alex, he spoke about how the film Crazy Rich Asians for him was a watershed moment when it came to seeing people who looked like him represented on screen. It was like the one time where I'm like, whoa, this is like me on the screen. Because I never like I never saw a lot of Asian people on television when I was growing up, especially like queer people queer Asians so it was kind of like jarring seeing like these really attractive like Asian people who are just like in a story in a love story in a romance story just like showing themselves and not being whitewashed or being told by like a different um different perspective than an Asian perspective so that was probably the like the only time I've ever seen true representation of myself. Sometimes you don't even know what you're missing until you're confronted with that lack of representation. Growing up and learning more and studying more about just like representation it like dawned to me that I'm like whoa I didn't actually have anybody to look up to that I was basically faking who I was until crazy rich Asians came out is when I truly realized I'm like this is this is who I am I've been faking who I thought I was and who I thought I was like looking up to 
just because that's the only people I could see, if that makes sense. Just the skin color and just how they acted and how like their stories are told. I just assumed that like this is what the norm was and this is what I should be feeling. So I guess how like people how white people's stories are told on on the screen, uh, how they interact with their family, I thought that's how my family should interact with or how I should interact with my family. So it was I was always confused. I'm like, why like why did my parents never tell me that Santa Claus existed? Why do I have like not like cookies on the like in front of the fireplace? Why didn't I do this and that? When it's because that's not ingrained in my culture. So I was caught confused, but also thought that was like the apex of what my family should be and what my life should be. And then watching Crazy Rich Asians, it was like, oh my God, people actually interacted with their family the way I did. Like that's not a weird thing that my family did. Like, I, like doing all these like things, these dinners, these like huge parties, these get, get togethers, that's normal. And growing up, I didn't think that was normal. Due to the small number of queer characters on screen, especially well-rounded ones, it can sometimes feel like we have to, as queer people, take what we can get when it comes to identifying with these on-screen characters. And as Alex brought up in our interview, this can be even more pronounced for BIPOC queer folks. Half of me is relating to how, what they're experiencing. I mean, like, oh yeah, like what they're, the stories that are told, I kind of relate to it. But then I always look at like the Asian side, which is so different and so actually not the same. I always like get confused and conflicted because everybody, a lot of my friends are white. So when they see these queer characters, they're like, oh, I get this. Like, this is like my story. Like, I, I understand. I'm like, oh yeah, me too. Like, I, I get it. Like, it, 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 I relate to it. But also at the same time, I don't because it's still told between in like a white lens instead of like any other kind of lens. I think Moonlight was probably another, another story that I related a bit more, but even then it still didn't relate to me because it wasn't an Asian person, especially like a South, uh, Southeast Asian person. So it, I get conflicted a lot of the time, but usually I'm like, okay, I do see myself in it because like, it's, it's what, it's what I can get right now. And I can't, I, there's no stories being told in that, in a queer Asian perspective. So I can't just take what I could get. <laughs> Having characters that you don't see on the screen that are you, even if it's like your race or whatever, like I said, you, you always kind of fake who you are and you kind of try to like twist these stories and be like, yeah, like it, it, it's me, it's me. This is the story is me, even though it's really not you. So seeing these like stories, it's like, it helps you understand your life. And it helps, helps you understand that other people also have your same life and that you're not alone because you know if I had that as a kid if I saw a queer Asian person holy shit my life would be a hundred times different my family would probably be a lot different too they probably would have we would have talked about it more but since we didn't have it it was just it was I was like a shut-in until grade 10 which is pretty late like I didn't really know what gay was until grade 10 which is so sad to say because it's like why didn't I know what that word mean why didn't why didn't I know what that word meant? Uh, but yeah, I think that's why representation really matters. It's just it's just to help you feel like you're not alone in the world. And of course, just because there are queer characters in a TV series or movie does not mean that they're actually good representatives of queer life and culture. In so many examples of queer representation in film and media, there are stereotypes that abound. One uh, example that Alex brought up in the interview was uh, was this case of Friends and Carol, Ross's ex-wife. I didn't ever really watch Friends, but I think, Thomas, maybe you can tell us a bit about this, uh, this example. So Ross's ex-wife, Carol, she's a pretty one-dimensional character who is mostly defined by her former relationship to Ross and her current 
relationship with a woman slash status as a lesbian. As Alex said in our interview, they only used them as a punchline. The people that made them didn't really take into account, into account much, except that Ross hates them and blames them for his failure in life. So it's interesting when we look at things that were sort of hailed as good representation at the time, like I wasn't really alive <laughs> when Friends was on TV, but even the fact that, you know, Carol is a lesbian was hailed as good representation at the time simply by the fact that she just exists. And that was representation. These one-dimensional characters are, at the time that they were sort of on these shows, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, they were hailed as this, these great representations of, of, of queer folks. And, and often, the problem is that these are like really poorly developed queer characters that are one-dimensional. So the only thing is that, you know, they're gay. And often their storyline story really only centers on the fact of their coming out and the challenges that they have coming out. The only story that they can tell is that they're coming out that they have so much hardships in life when it's like, yes, that is, that is a big thing in queer culture and not queer culture and like queer lives that it, it is hard to come out. It is hard to, it, and people get a lot of backlash for it, but also that's not the only kind of story you can tell. And also just them being gay is like I said, is not a personality trait. It's, it's how they identify. So having a bad character is like not giving them any substance in life, except for that they are gay. And the stereotypes are like annoying, obviously, but it could like give a bit more context to the character. But even then, it's like these char- these people who write them obviously don't know what queer people are. They don't take into account stories they've heard, or they don't even ask people who are queer to give guidance to this character they create uh, that they're creating. So I think that's like how a bad queer character is created is when they don't know anything about it except for the specific stereotypes and that they're just gay. So what makes a good queer character and where can you find them? Authenticity is key, and queer characters should be about more than just their sexual identity. I feel like we could really get like a one girl, five gays thing going on here, where we're like, what makes for good queer characters and where can you find them? I can try to do that, Reed. Let me just... No, I can. I know what it sounds like. I can just do it. <laughs> what makes for a good queer character and where can you find them? Authenticity is key, and queer characters should be more than their sexual identity. <laughs> the best way to have like a good character is knowing exactly every single detail about this character, like their birthday, what their sign is, what their favorite food is, what they like, what they dislike, how their relationships are, how they interact in certain situations, like doing an interview or like just being at home. So I think just having every single aspect of the character as if it's like a real person. Because I think a lot of people forget that when they create a character, they just forget that once you figure out that this is an actual person and you want to know everything about them, that's when it becomes a good character. And it's not, and you don't base their whole story off of like one specific thing because that's not how people are. We have different stories. We have different things that affect us instead of just one big thing. And in the interview, Alex also spoke about how sometimes, at least in animated shows, it's not necessarily about seeing people who look like you on screen, but seeing characters who embody queer experiences. One example that he brought up was the show Steven Universe. I wish we had Steven Universe back when I was a kid, because it, it would have drastically changed my life, because these characters were... It's so weird to say, because I'm always like on the fence of, should they be say, like, I am gay, I am trans, I am whatever? But in Steven Universe, they don't explicitly say any of that all you see is that they're happy they're in they're in love they're in different relationships they experience these 
real things. So it's like, I think it's good to show kids queer representation because it just helps them to understand that it's okay to have these feelings to other people. It's okay to love whoever you want. It's okay to do, to like do whatever. It's okay to like experiment things. It's okay to like think these thoughts because I find that if we don't have those those other views, people, our kids always think of like one side and they are kind of told subliminally not to think anything besides what they see on television. And since you're growing up, you kind of always want to follow the status quo because that's all you kind of know at the time. So once they see other things like, like Garnet, Ruby and Sapphire, it makes you realize like, oh, I can, I can love somebody that's the same gender as me. I can love somebody like this. I can do these things. Steven Universe is probably, I think, like the best, the best representation for queer people because it has, or just like representation because it has so many different types of characters, so many different types of relationships, and they never, they never make fun of these relationships. They never like say it's a weird thing for like the main character. They're just like, just be happy is basically what they is what they're kind of implying. So it's it's so good. It makes me it makes my heart really happy. So anybody listening, <laughs> please watch Steven Universe because it is probably one of the, the best shows you could ever watch. And it's a cartoon. So obviously it's good. I really do wish that we had stories like this growing up because it would have affected my life. It would have affected so many things. And I'm sure people who do watch it now are saying that it, it's helped them a lot. Alex also mentioned the show Sailor Moon and the erasure of Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune's relationship in the English dub. They were queer in the original, but were billed as cousins in the English dub, which makes for a little bit of some weird awkwardness. In like the English dub, the two characters, if you don't know, Sailor Uranus, Sailor Neptune, in the English dub, they're cousins. But in the like Japanese original dub, they're actually lovers, like they're dating. It was a huge choice. And like, why did you make them become cousins? And it was weird because like back then when I watched them, like, they're very like touchy feely for cousins, but not touching. Uh, but like, I think that's probably the first time I really saw like a a gay character was because I watched the Japanese dub. But yeah, I found it interesting that the Western world decided to erase that. The one thing that came up time and time again is authenticity of queer characters is key. So one example that uh, again Alex brought up in our interview, and this is also an example that has been brought up on previous episodes, is the example of David from the show Shit's Creek. He's just so authentically himself. They never made his character to be just queer. They actually had a whole story about him. They had like a whole character development. His like personality wasn't that he was queer, which I find a lot of like characters are where it's like the only personality trait you have is that you're gay and that's it. That's not a personality trait though. That's not who he is as a person. That's just how he identifies, how this person identifies. So I think David is like my favorite because he was just being him and he wasn't like pushed into this pigeonhole as a like, you're the queer person, you're the gay person. Why do we need queer stories and queer characters? Why are they important? Does it matter if queer people are cast to play queer characters? I think telling stories about queer people and trans people and the community, you always have to remember that when you create these stories, you have to cast people who live these lives. I've seen a lot of people who are like, I couldn't find a gay person, I couldn't find a trans person. I'm like, well, you didn't look hard enough. Also, then why are you telling this story if you aren't actively searching for these people? Because certainly these actors can give you input on what you're writing. And that's what you want. Because if you're just like writing it from just your own perspective, that's just so one-sided. 
it's so one dimensional. You need other people to give you input and like their own thoughts because that's the lives you're talking about. Even if they say like, this is good. I like it. That's good enough. But not even asking, not even trying to search for these things to tell these stories. It's so boring and also usually incorrect and usually are not, it's not re uh, received very well. So queer representation is better than it used to be, especially if we're looking all the way back to the examples that we were looking at in our first episode of the series, where we spoke with Chris Vogel and the show that he produced in Winnipeg in the 80s and 90s. But there's still a lot of room for improvement. And Alex sees a need to break out of the established tropes and tell new, fresh stories about queer folks. But are the people actually producing television and films these days tapped into these conversations and into these concerns? Are they actually aware of these sort of critiques of media? And are they actually trying to incorporate feedback from queer communities? They have to strive to have different stories told than the ones that they are used to and the ones that are like the best-selling ones. Like telling a superhero story is usually like, we'll make you a lot of money, even if it's bad. But like, I think they just have to like strive to to want to create different types of stories from different people and from underrepresented people and people who are starting up. Well, as always, thank you so much to our guest this week, Alex, aka Ruby Chopsticks. Again, if you ever have the chance to see Alex perform as Ruby Chopsticks, highly recommend it. Of course, you can also find them on Instagram, Ruby Chopsticks. Look it up. If you have just stumbled upon this episode and you're like, wow, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard and I want to hear more about this topic. Well, you are in luck because we have two 0.5 more episodes on basically this topic. You can hear our other episodes and you can hear a really long episode where it's just Isaac and I talking about our opinions. And you can find those wherever you get your podcasts on whatever app you use on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Is there a Google Podcasts app? I don't know. If you want to respond to this episode, you can tweet at the show at HDWGQPod on Twitter. And you can find our pigeon mother at the pigeon on Twitter or www.the-pigeon.ca. Is it .ca or .com? Yeah, of course it's .ca because we are proudly Canadian, but we are not patriots. I reject patriotism. But that's for another episode, maybe. Uh <laughs> Tuned in next month when we reject patriotism. Bye, guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And also, as always, thank you to our hardworking producers, Sarah Williscraft, Shannon Waters, and Olivia Fava, and to our very, very hardworking editor, Colton Madigan. Thank you for making us sound somewhat intelligent. We'll see you guys next month. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.